In December 2017, Tim Ritchie won the U.S. Marathon Championship at the California International Marathon. In doing so, Tim became one of only two Americans that year to cover the marathon distance in under two hours and 12 minutes. Simultaneously, he became a legitimate contender for our Olympic team at the 2020 Tokyo Games. Tim joined me earlier this week via Skype, and we caught up on his training, race goals, coaching, and much more as he nears the Atlanta Trials. Here's Tim Ritchie and Mile 50 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. All right, Tim Ritchie, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Great, man. It's so good to have you in. We are within two weeks of the Olympic Trials Marathon. How are you feeling? Well, I'm feeling everything all at once, I guess. So, <laughs> uh, training is coming to a conclusion, and uh, you know, now it's about balancing rest and recovery and nerves and uh kind of just putting on the, the final touches yeah on that note what will the next couple of weeks look like for you uh for me it's you know mainly just trying to balance um continuing to to train pretty hard uh with also just getting enough sleep and eating right and hydrating and managing some some work stress uh the olympic trials are the same day as our uh, indoor track and field conference championship at the school I coach at U- University of Massachusetts. So there's a lot going on these next two weeks at work to kind of prep those guys for the championship. And that'd be a good uh, distraction for me as I'm uh, just kind of, yeah, wrapping it up, wrapping up the training, one or two more big sessions and, and coasting to the race. So uh, we'll get back to the trials, but you brought up uh, coaching at UMass there. And <clears throat> you are a Massachusetts guy to the core grew up in the States, ran at BC. What's this experience been like here recently, coaching at the state's flagship university? It's been awesome. Um, yeah, it's a school that was, was easy for me to, to get behind. You know, when the job opportunity opened up there, uh, I was kind of a no-brainer to throw my hat in the ring and was really lucky to get hired as the head cross-country coach for the men's program. And, um, you know, our alums have been really receptive and the, the – the athletes that were already there were really welcoming and um you know we're just trying to generate some excitement about the program within the state and within the region and uh kind of showcase showcase the great distance running talent we have up here in the northeast i think uh, last year at boston did did you have some of the kids from the team out supporting you at the race last year at the marathon uh, there were a few in there, yeah. I mean, it's a state holiday, so they don't have school or anything, and so a lot of them were able to travel in for the for the competition. Plus, a lot of the kids I used to coach at BC. I mean, the marathon course goes right by BC too. So, right. Yeah. Um, you know, it's always a, a a highlight for me. Yeah. So I, I ran uh, the race as well, and as a, I can't remember where I was on the course now, but I ran through, and there was a pack of some people with some like UMass cross country gear on. So I thought they had to be out there for you. And you were banged up going into the race last year at Boston, right? What was that experience like? Yeah, it was uh, pretty brutal. Uh, my, I kind of developed a, 
what I came to call like a hip flexor strain about two weeks prior to Boston. And, um, it was pretty debilitating. Like I just couldn't, just couldn't get out for a run. So I, I essentially didn't run for about 11 days prior to the race, um, jogged the day before and tried to run 26.2 miles a day of. So, but it was, you know, that race is, has a, a big emotional connotation for me. And, uh, it's a big part of my running journey. And, thought I could roll the dice on, on my hip and, and give it my all. And so, yeah, so I raced it, felt pretty good through about 16. And then, then that was the end of my race and just kind of hobbled my way and, uh, into Boylston for the, for the last 10 miles. So, um, great experience, but yeah, obviously a tough way to, tough way to run Boston. That is the ultimate marathon taper there. The just 11 yeah. days off. Uh, yeah, I couldn't do anything like because even cross training would, would risk kind of having it flare up. And yeah, I was just kind of trying to get treatment. And uh, yeah, just, just pretty frustrating because I, I think I was uh, pretty fit. I had done a, a workout with Scott Fobble who ended up running 209 uh, earlier in the buildup. And then I had raced with Jared Ward in New York City half and you know, another guy who ran 209 that day. And, uh, you know, I thought I was fit enough to, to have a great race. And so it was, yeah, it was pretty tough to, to go in there un, unhealthy and unable to kind of rise up to the occasion. On the Boston Marathon note, I've read uh, where you said that Boston in 2013 changed the trajectory of your running career. Can you describe more about that? Yeah, I can try. <laughs> um, yeah, Boston 2013. I mean, that was my debut marathon. And, uh, you know, I was at that point, I was kind of at a crossroads that I think a lot of sub elite runners get to where, you know, I've been out of college at that point for four years or three years um, and started to see some success. But it was kind of, you know, you had to make a decision. Is this something I'm going to continue to pour, you know, my heart and soul into? Or is it time to kind of pursue other options but I was so excited every day to wake up and train for that race in particular and uh kind of really reinvigorated my love for training and and competition I was so excited to go out there and race Boston Marathon you know our our home our home marathon so that was a big part of it um and then obviously that year 2013 was the year the 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 bombing at the finish line and that was a pretty emotional day for the city and for myself and um you know, we just saw a lot of goodness come out of that tragedy and a lot of kind of redefining for me what it meant to be a runner. So, yeah, that kind of spurred me on where you saw all these people kind of overcoming this adversity and coming together to try to help each other out. And it kind of really painted a beautiful picture of what uh, of what running can really be mm. for individuals, for a community, for a city. Um and so I knew, like, after that day, like, I, there was more running than I had to do in, in one, one way, shape, or form. Running at its best can be so powerful and transformative, right? Even out of such a dark moment. What's your favorite Boston Marathon memory? Either your experience or maybe you, you watching the race. Just anything that really sticks out to you. Yeah, for me, it was t- uh, 2011. Um, yeah. watching like that race pretty much made me want to run the marathon, uh, Ryan Hall running 204 and, uh, watching Jeffrey Mutai and Moses Mosop, uh, run 20302 and 20304, which at the time was like well under the world record. So that year was awesome. Like I remember standing on this, on the street 
at Boston College, like mile 21, and watching those guys like s- sprinting down the backside of Heartbreak Hill, uh, 21 miles deep into a marathon. Yeah. And these guys were just like, it was like a boxing match. They were just going punch for punch, uh, most up in, in Mutai. I was like, this is, I've never seen marathoning done like this. And that's what I wanted. I wanted some of that. So, um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So that race 2013 was like, um, you know, I've been <clears throat> running cross country, running track and having some success at shorter distances, but watching that race, I was like, all right, I know I want to do the marathon at some point. Yeah. Looking back on that 2011 race for me, obviously Ryan Hall's performance is incredible, but as you said, the, the front of that with Muay time felt like this first moment where we were really thinking about breaking two hours after he did that. Yeah. And thoughts on what seemed this impossible dream for so long and just the uh, Kipchoge performance this past year and what it means maybe for the future of the sport. Yeah, I mean, Kipchoge's whole thing is, uh, you know, no human is limited. And so I think it's good. Like seeing him prove that (laughs) kind of gives everybody hope, whether they're gunning for a some five-hour marathon or whether they're trying to make an olympic team or something it's uh it's about don't it's about not letting external limitations define who you are mm. um and about you kind of redefining what those things are for yourself and he's somebody that i kipchoge is somebody i really look up to in the sport he's just um really has a profound take on the role of mindset in competition and in training and it's something i'm always trying to preach to my guys i'm always sending him kipchoge uh, quotes or youtube videos or something where he's talking about discipline and peace and teamwork and like all these really pure fundamental things that that have helped him become uh, the greatest marathoner in history um so yeah i thought that yeah sure it was partially a science experiment but sure it was a cool one. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah. Before you even said it, that was my thought there, how you might be translating that uh, to your team and, and what you're doing. And to, to take a step back there, you're in this crazy unique position of you're getting to go run the marathon trials while they're at conference championships. What does that preparation look like for you? I'm sure this has to be a pretty stressful moment in your life at a place where you'd like to probably be relaxed and able to focus in on one thing? Has it been good to have that balance? Uh, you know, what, what did the, that look like these couple weeks from a coaching perspective? Yeah, I mean, f- I've been coaching ever since I graduated, and so it's always been kind of in my uh, – it's always been a part of my routine, and so I don't think it changes much. You know, I've learned how to try to balance the, the work and – um, what I need to be doing personally. And those guys have been awesome. They've been like pretty receptive. I told them when they came back from winter break, I'm like, all right, we're heading into the, like the final six weeks of my training. So if I say one thing and it sounds like gibberish, <laughs> I'm like, just let me, <laughs> just let me know. Cause like my head is like definitely divided in, uh, into worlds right now. And they were all like, to- totally understand we're here to support you. And, and so they were really, really receptive of it. And, uh, at the same time, I mean, running has always been a community thing for me. And so being able to help these guys kind of pursue their own goals, that's, that's not counterproductive to what I'm doing. It's, it's, uh, it reinforces what, I, what I'm doing. So um, it's been fun. We're kind of sharing in this build up together. 
yeah, make make it even more special to bring some people along the way with you, right? Yeah, absolutely. So last year leading into Boston, you said those last two weeks, pretty rough with the injury. Uh, feeling better, feeling ready to roll this time around? Yeah, uh, for the most part. I kind of had that in training interruption back around Christmas time. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, I just had to do a, a boatload of cross training through kind of the early part of the winter. But that's, you know, that's nothing new. Um, and yeah, now I'm just kind of feeling the normal aches and pains that you feel two weeks before a marathon sure. where uh, maybe your mind is making some of these things bigger than they are. <laughs> And that experience in Boston has left a little trauma <laughs> in in my mind. So, um, yeah, I'm just trying to be super cautious and uh, get get massage and get treatment and stay on top of my body during these final final weeks. But, yeah, the buildup's been, been pretty good. Um, you know, like I said, we had to be pretty creative doing a lot of cross-training workouts, uh, cross-training volume. But then the last five or six weeks being able to get in some pretty high-level marathon specific sessions so it's been good yeah i've been trying to weather's been all over the place up here um but for the most part been able to kind of knock out some key sessions without without issue uh, are you willing to share a little bit about some of those key principles to your training yeah um so with me and especially with my job like we're pretty much do two hard sessions a week um and so we try to really maximize those and They'll be pretty high volume. You know, those days will be 17 to 22 miles. Um, and then I'll take a day off every seven to nine days. And the days in between are kind of just recovery runs, nine to 12 miles uh, or cross-train recovery days. Yeah, and the sessions, I mean, they're, we're doing a lot of like fart licks over hills, a lot of... Um, you know, extended blocks at marathon pace within a long run or, you know, we did on Sunday, we just did 20 miles and it was, um, you know, a couple easy miles and then a good stretch doing a minute on minute off fart lick over hills for five or six miles. And then some easy miles and then a three mile block at marathon effort, you know, kind of that stuff where you're just, you're, doing a little bit of rhythmic running that the marathon entails, but also recognizing that Atlanta isn't going to be a very rhythmic course. Sure. So, so making a lot of these things kind of fartlek style or incorporating hills um, to kind of get the body adapting to various stresses. So, so simulating some of that uh, up and down you're going to see and, and the style of racing, of course, that you'll yeah. see as well in a championship race. Exactly. How much, how much has that Atlanta course layout changed your approach here as compared to, say, CIM 2017 when you won a U.S. championship on a course that does roll a decent amount, but is nothing like what you're headed into in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I guess not much because <laughs> stick I think to what works. Well, it's more that we're always kind of training for an Atlanta course, even if the course is Chicago. You know, it's like uh, my coach loves hills, and so yeah. we're doing hill, we're doing hill repeats, we're doing long runs over hills, we're doing fartlek style running all the time uh you know we just see a lot of value in kind of a cross-country style of training yeah. where um you're doing a lot of 
you know, sub-marathon effort stuff. You're doing a lot of fast repeats, um, maybe less so for me since I've started working at a more full-time level just because of the recovery element. But, um, yeah, we're doing – you get you get better at running hills even if you're prepping for a flat course. Like, you'll get you'll get pretty strong. So, um, so yeah, nothing – nothing drastically new. I mean, we try to try to train pretty consistently. Yeah, you're right. There's uh, probably some, in addition to just the aerobic and neuromuscular benefits, uh, strength benefits from hill work, uh, just the toughness element that's got to be huge, both physically and mentally. Uh, you have to feel prepared from that aspect heading in. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's the biggest thing about hills is that they're always hard, no matter what kind of yeah. shape you're in. Uh, they're going to be hard. And where I live out in Western Mass, like we got, uh, it's great. We got plenty of rolling terrain and kind of foothills to to the Berkshire Mountains, and so it's yeah. I mean, you can't go for an easy run around here without climbing a little bit. Yeah, we just try to make it the norm. Um, and I think everybody who's prepping for Atlanta is doing the same thing. I mean, everybody's done their research and. Uh, you know, I think it'll be a, I don't think the course is going to change how the race plays out at all because I think everybody's kind of, uh, coming in with the same preparation. Sure. How does your trials experience in 2016 in LA help you out this time? Yeah, I think I'm hoping it kind of helps me handle the, the excitement and the fanfare of it all a little better. You know, I want to try to go down there and appreciate the moment. Um, and really just kind of soak it all in, but not be intimidated or overwhelmed by it. So uh, 2016 was great. It was a lot of fun. I actually flew to L.A. two weeks early to be able to kind of be out there, and I had the luxury to, to do that at the time. And um, this time we're kind of like, yeah, go to work on Wednesday and then get up Thursday morning, fly down there, race, and then try to get back in time for the championship uh, on Sunday. So um, being able to just kind of, you know, like I said, go down there, appreciate the moment and, and recognize how, how great of an opportunity it is, but also just race, go down there and give them my best. Your bona fides are as strong as about anybody in this field, Tim, between a U.S. marathon championship and a 61-23 half PR. What is the mental approach to race day, knowing that, that you have to, I assume, go in, you just said the opportunity you have you have to go in with the real thought that you are competing to be on this team. And I know everyone at, at this level who's who's there on that day has that thought a little bit, but it's more reality for some than it is others. How do you visualize that? How do you prepare for that mentally? Yeah, I mean, I think I just got to run like I got something to gain versus like I got something to lose. So I think I can go down there and win the race. Um, and that's that's the goal. It's so it just becomes really simple. Like I don't have to cloud the race plan with anything other than put yourself in the best, best position to win the thing and, uh, and give it your all. So, I mean, coaching has been great for me because, you know, a lot of times when I'm counseling these guys on how to approach a race, it's really just, uh, reinforcing what I'm trying, to, <laughs> yeah. trying to tell myself. And so we always say like, you, you should be able to cross every single finish line knowing that you had a great race before you look at the clock or the result sheet, you know, you got to go into a race and control what you can control, which is your effort, your output and your attitude. And, um, you know, you do those things, you cross the finish line proud, whether you won the thing or coming fourth or coming 
40th. So um, that's what I'm going to do down there is go be competitive, try to draw on uh, the inspiration that I got from all the people in my corner and um, just, yeah, go down there and race with some pride. I'm, I'm lucky to to be able to do this. And, yeah, I've had the blessing of some good runs in my career. And so I know that the potential is there. It's a realistic possibility for me to go down there and think that I can win. And I'm just going to try to uh, – not take that for granted and not underestimate anybody, but especially not underestimate myself. Yeah. Great advice on controlling what you can control there. That's everything else is, is just out of your hands. The weather, the competition, all those things. Um, step back, Tim Ritchie, a decade ago, almost now 2011 watching the Boston marathon where you are right now. Is, is this something you ever envisioned back then? I don't think I, uh, really looked more than six months in the future. <laughs> um, and I try not to do that still, you know, it's, it's about kind of trying to be present and enjoy the things as they're happening. And, you know, I've been, I've just been really fortunate to have a lot of, um, positive support and good mentors and good teammates and, uh, family that has encouraged this habit of mine. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if I ever thought I'd be here, but I'm not surprised that I am, I guess. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's come about organically. I feel like I've been able to enjoy a lot of other elements of my life and start a career in coaching and get married and have all these other great things happen to me uh, and be able to continue to still compete at a high level. It's just, um, you know, I've been really lucky to, to be able to sustain that. Saucony has been supporting me since 2014, which is, a huge, uh, a huge asset, obviously, to have the the backing of a company that believes in me and the financial support too. So, yeah, I feel like I don't know if it was a dream of mine or not, but I'm really <laughs> uh, proud uh, to be able to to still be doing this. You just mentioned Saucony as your sponsor, and we're in the midst of some shoe wars. It seems. What will be on your feet when you get to the line in Atlanta? Yeah, honestly, I'm still kind of juggling some options, Um, you know, with my uh, running injury, which wasn't footwear related. um, I haven't had the chance to really do a lot of high quality sessions in some of the newer shoes, Mm. but Saucony does have a a shoe that they're going to be releasing to the public soon (laughs) called the Endorphin Pro, Um, and it's, it's a shoe that people like Jared Ward wore the prototype when he ran 209 in Boston and one of my teammates just ran sub 102 and a half in Phoenix and it's a great shoe um you know everything they make has been great so far and so this is just the kind of the next step in the in the production line for them so that's probably less likely what I'll be wearing is uh yeah the shoe called the Endorphin Pro what did you run last year this time like at Boston what did you race in I wore the Kinvara. Okay, so, that's, so yeah, more of a traditional lightweight neutral shoe. Now to the next iteration of carbon fiber plates and and the discussion that has gone on, largely produced by the Nike uh, Vaporfly stuff. Any thoughts just on the regulations that IAAF came out with and how you feel about the playing field for competition? Not necessarily just at the trials, but looking ahead to Tokyo and then maybe 
even down the road and thinking of what's the point where this is me showing all that I can do versus what the shoe is bringing me as a mechanical advantage? Yeah, I mean, that's a loaded question. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> I that, but I think it's a really interesting topic. Yeah, you know, it absolutely is. And obviously, it's like what everybody in running loves to talk about right now. And um, which is good, which is good and bad. I mean, um, anything that generates a little bit of excitement or a little bit of controversy can can be a good thing. Um, for me, like, I guess, I don't know, I guess I, maybe I don't care about it as much as I should. Uh, running is it's always just been me kind of going out there and trying to do my best. And, uh, you know, I just haven't, um, maybe I should have a stronger opinion than I do, but I kind of, my whole thought has kind of been whatever. Um, and so, but that being said, I mean, tech advancements in the sport, that's part, that's part of sport. So innovation is just great. And, and, you know, I'm wearing shoes that are, uh, 10 times better than, Rod Dixon had when he was wearing Saucony back in the 80s, but... Yeah, you just took the words right out of my mouth, Tim. I was just going to make the comparison between a Canvara and Rod Dixon at New York City in 83, right? Winning yeah. a, a world marathon major, just how much that's evolved. And and as you said, that is natural. But that, this, I mean, that guy ran 208 in like right? uh, skateboard shoes, essentially. It's like... Yeah, think of what a stud he was, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, one of our uh, favorite quotes around the show, and my co-host Ben likes to often reference Rod Dixon saying all he wanted to do was drink beer and train like an animal. And he certainly performed across many disciplines uh, from 1500 up to the marathon. And there were so many runners of that era who we look back on. And, and it's really amazing the way they performed compared to today's uh, technological advancements. Right. Your first answer there, I think, speaks to some of the purity of the sport and why it is so great and so many of us are drawn to it. And you said, it's just me out there trying to be the best at what I do and challenge myself. To the flip side, though, I think there is an argument that all publicity can be good publicity, right? The way this is drawing people to the sport, perhaps. New new eyes on what you and so many others are doing. New attention. That, that's got to be good in some way for you, even as a Saucony athlete um, that hasn't yeah. really been at the center of the controversy. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, it's good and bad. I mean, I think some, you know, there's been a lot of amazing performances out there that I think, people just look at the shoe and they don't see the runner in the shoe. Yeah. And part of me is, you know, I've kind of had a lot of bad luck in the last 18 months when it comes to racing and the, you know, I've still think I've improved a lot. And if I make the Olympic team, that was because I just worked my butt off for the last two years or 12 years really uh, to try to make it happen. And so, yeah, obviously I want the shoes to be a part of it because I'm out here trying to sell Saucony shoes. Right. But at the same time, <laughs> I want people like, I don't, it seems like people are so quick to chalk it up to footwear now, and that's a bummer. But at the same time, like with Saucony, we're as a Saucony athlete, we're able to develop a pretty close relationship with the workers at HQ, like the guys who are designing and testing and improving the footwear. Like we know them personally, and so to see their excitement about creating something new and exciting and competitive like that 
makes me feel good where it's like oh this isn't it's not just a shoe wars or whatever it's no this guy in in our biomechanics lab is working really hard to create a product he's proud of and wants to get out there to the masses as well and that's great that's you know that's him pursuing his passion the same way I am too and so to be able to kind of put a personal note on that has been a lot of fun and, and definitely increases like the sense of pride I have running for a company like Saucony, like a smaller, a smaller running brand uh, compared to like Nike, um, where, yeah, it's not just throwing a shoe out there that can compete with the Nike shoe, but it's got a story behind it. And it's got faces that I know and care about behind it. Yeah, the Freedom Track Club from Saucony seems like it's been a really successful endeavor. How much are you working in in your training with teammates there and and maybe what have been some of the lessons that you've uh, learned and, and wisdom you've gained from uh, being around so many quality runners yeah so I'm in a unique situation I kind of got um, grandfathered in <laughs> to the to the freedom track club because coach bro was coaching me back in uh, 2016 and so he when they started the club, I was already had a working relationship with him and he was able to kind of um, help me out. But that was like right when I left Boston to move to Connecticut. So they formed this team and then I left. <laughs> so it was kind of kind of an interesting situation. So I've been training kind of remotely um, since, yeah, since summer 2016. But that, yeah, having those teammates has been awesome because I always run better when I feel like I'm running with a purpose or as part of a team. So even if I'm training solo and for a while it was kind of like the lone marathoner in the group, um, I still drew on what they were doing. If they had great races, I get excited about it. It would bolster my confidence in coach bro. Um, and yeah, so it's just fun to like, when I left college, I ran for a club team and I loved it. And then I signed with Saucony and I was kind of an individual for a while. And then they formed the freedom track club and I felt like right at home again. What shoe are you training in right now? Uh, I wear a little bit of everything, so okay. yeah, I used to just be one shoe all the time, but I've been really working hard on trying to like um, build up some foot strength and adapt to different stresses and stimulus, and um, so the Guide has been my go-to. Mm -hmm. um, they just came out with the Guide 13, and I've been running in that shoe since uh, it was the Guide 1. Okay, so yeah. I've had like, yeah, all 13 uh, editions of that shoe, and uh, I love it. So that's my workhorse. That's what I use for everything. Um, I'll use the Convara or now this uh, Endorphin Pro for a lot of high-end marathon work. And then I'll throw a ride in or a Triumph in um, just for some easy days or some recovery days just to kind of mix it up. Cool. You think that has been helpful as you look at just your health uh, over the recent years? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think it's been helpful to... Uh, yeah, just to try new things. It's also helped me loosen my grip on being so uh, specific about certain things. I think that's been good, Ment like mentally, just to say, no, everything doesn't have to fit into these neat little boxes to be successful at training. Like, you could have a bad day. You could, you know, maybe you forgot your favorite pair of shoes and it doesn't matter. Like, just kind of throw on what you got and get your running. So. Um, I think that's been the good thing for me too, is like letting go of some of these fears of injury or inconsistency and, and just going and being able to go for a run. 
All right, I'm going to hit you with a few quick questions here. Some of these are kind of off the wall, but we like to get your perspective. Rapid fire here. You just mentioned the guide. Which iteration of the guide would have been your all-time favorite? Like, if you could just pick one, what would it be? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Um, I'm trying to think of the number, but it was the as around eight. It was okay. Eight probably a model or two after they dropped from 12 millimeter to eight millimeter. I yeah. feel like it took me a model or two to kind of adjust and get used to it. So somewhere around seven or eight, I think was, was my favorite. Okay. Uh, favorite pizza topping. Um, I like just OG pepperoni. Classic. You can't go wrong there, Tim. Favorite book. My favorite book is called the razor's edge by uh, Somerset mom. Could you give a little bit of detail to those who are unfamiliar? <laughs> it's a Somerset mom is like a counter a contemporary of F. Scott Fitzgerald who wrote mm -hmm. Great Gatsby, kind of like these uh, late 20s uh, setting stories. And basically it's about this wanderer who is searching for meaning in life. And there's just a bunch of uh, him having these, there's no action in the novel. He's like, at luncheon and at tea, but having these pretty profound conversations of uh, for the results of his soul searching and, and stuff like that. So it's a great uh, tale of him wrestling with faith and wrestling with family and relationship and aging and uh, just trying to yeah find meaning in uh, in a world that can kind of throw you some curveballs. Yeah, absolutely. Would you rather at the end of the day sit down and read a book or are you more of a Netflix guy or flip on to some sports? Uh, what's the routine? Yeah, we do a little bit of both. Uh, uh, my wife and I, we both uh, work in jobs where we're dealing with people all day. So uh, sometimes we like to come home and watch an episode or two. Um, but then we've been reading every night before bed as well. And so uh, a good balance. We we'll usually try to get episode in and and then also, like, get rid of our screens, um, you know, like four yeah. or five minutes, an hour before bed. What are you guys watching now? We're watching The Ranch with uh, oh. Sam, El Sam Elliott and Ashton Kutcher. Yeah, so I haven't seen this, but I had a friend tell me that uh, he really enjoys this. So I guess I'll have to catch up. Do you have any uh, feedback here, your, your review, Richie's reviews on <laughs> Netflix? Well, we're on season eight, so it's got to be at least good enough to oh, well, yeah. keep, keep us in it. So it's great. Like, it hooks you early on with some good comedy, and then uh, they they deal with a lot of, um, yeah, big issues and family problems and, and stuff like that. And I'm kind of a sucker for that, that kind of stuff. And so watching these father-son relationships and brother-brother relationships really develop, uh, you know, that's – I really enjoy it. Cool. Uh, favorite spot to run in Boston? The Chestnut Hill Reservoir in the shadow of Boston College. Yeah, I thought you might go with that one. Uh, that's, um, the that's the best place in the world, not just in Boston. Yeah, popular running spot for sure. Uh, as you head into a race that could very well be really tactical, championship-style racing, advice that you might give your athletes or anyone who's listening now on how to handle that tactical race setting. When you are in a moment, and we preach this all the time to runners where time doesn't matter, but what you're headed into, time really doesn't matter at all here. What would be the biggest piece of advice? 
Uh, trust your gut. So we try to get these guys to really be instinctual racers. And if they're feeling, if they're feeling something, they should listen to it and go for it. So that'd be, that'd be my number one. And my number two is there's nothing wrong with running from the front. So if you don't like the way the race is going, do something about it. Dictate the pace yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Tim, uh, excited to see how it goes here for you in a couple of weeks. Thanks for spending some time with us. Are you at all willing to look ahead? Have you thought about what's next after Atlanta? I'm sure that's been all-encompassing for a little while. <laughs> Uh, no, I thought a lot about it. After Atlanta comes Tokyo. That was the answer I wanted to hear, man. That is beautiful. And as an aside, just within, I don't know, maybe today or yesterday, I don't know when I first read this, but Tokyo is canceling the general marathon and just having the elites race. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, I think, part of their marathon trials, too. Can you imagine that having been having run Boston and this setting where obviously the elites are off the front first, but this huge throng, masses, tens of thousands of people that kind of make it what it is, does that make an event like that that much more special for you too as an elite? Or is that just guys like me who are kind of average, who appreciate that huge crowd and the chance to run near guys like you? No, I, lo I love that stuff. That's why... I I took to road racing right away because it was something I could share, not just with elites, but with anybody, um, you know, whether it's a local 5k or us champs that's being hosted by a, a bigger road race. Um, that stuff really matters to me. I love being at a finish line, uh, you know, post party in the town common or whatever, and watching people show off their medals and kind of celebrate their achievements. And it's just always a good reminder to me that, um, that anybody in the race can achieve something big and feel what I'm feeling at the end of a, of a great run. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be an interesting race in Tokyo and, um, you know, obviously that's a tough choice for race directors to make. I was at New York in 2016 when they had to, um, no, in 2012, uh, when they right. had to cancel, when they had to cancel that race, I was down there ready to compete. Um, and so I just know how heart wrenching it is for, the race directors to make that call but how uh, sometimes it, it's the right decision for the for the time and for the for the masses so um but yeah i i would i love running uh i love knowing that that i'm kind of plowing the road paving the road for for thousands of runners behind me very neat well we'll be down in atlanta look forward to seeing you there and wish you the best of luck as you make your attempt at the U.S. Olympic team for Tokyo this summer. So, Tim, thanks again for joining Seconds Flat. We really appreciate your time. No problem, Travis. Thank you. That's all for this time, but be sure to tune in next week as your boy Benji returns for our Olympic Marathon Trials preview and predictions. Thanks for listening, and please subscribe, rate, and review the program if you haven't already done so. As always, you can connect with us at secondsflatpodcast at gmail.com. Talk to you soon.